This morning, uh, Tracy read our passage for us. Thank you, Tracy. We are in Matthew's gospel. We're cruising right along. We've been in chapters eight and nine. Chapters eight and nine of Matthew's gospel are, are all about Jesus's authority, particularly in his control and his dominance over the demonic, over disease, over the wind and the weather. He is, he's flexing in a very big way. And so today we're going to see the last three of 10 of Jesus's miracles. Um, this, the, the, the title of my sermon this morning is Let Your Pain Promote Your Faith in Christ. Here's the big idea. Our pain, if we will let it, will promote our faith in the Lord Jesus. Our pain, if we let it, will actually further our faith. It will strengthen our faith. What if our pain is actually pushing us to the most direct route possible to Jesus Christ? We hate pain. I hate pain. Ankle pain, back pain, relationship pain, rejection pain, breakup pain, fear of the future pain. Even when we know that pain brings us growth, we avoid it as quickly as possible. We, we, we seek the most direct route away from pain. Here's what I want to uh, just put before you this morning, lay before you this morning. What if? What if we made a decision on the front end while our pain is subtle, while maybe we're experiencing some high times in life and pain isn't yet here on our doorstep, what if we decide now in the moment we make a vow to ourselves, to our loved ones, and certainly to the Lord, a commitment that when pain comes, we want our first move to be to lean on him, to push toward him, to depend on him. Like, uh, here's what I'm putting before you. I'm not even asking you to move anything but your spiritual heads and your spiritual hearts, your spiritual eyes toward Christ. So when pain comes, instead of seeking the most direct route away from pain, what if we seek the most direct route to the Lord Jesus who has authority over all things? So we acknowledge him in our pain. We reconfirm our faith in him through our pain, whatever that looks like. We rehearse the gospel to our pain and over our pain, and we remember that God is with us in all of our pain. I got to witness somebody live this out recently, and I will never forget it. In a moment of intense pain, their first words were through tears, God, I will trust in you. I'll never forget the moment. If you knew the details, you would know why. Pain is a part of the race that we run. Now, if, if, we, if, if we lean into this space of saying, Lord, this is what I want, you, we gotta know on the front end that we're gonna fall all over ourselves and fail spectacularly in keeping this commitment on the front end. But you know, when you begin to rehearse something, you're really, really, really amateur at it. And we begin to develop some skill and some reflexivity. And after a time of rehearsing something, you actually, you, you begin to just go to that thing naturally. And so that's what I'm asking. What if, though clumsy, what if we lean into uh, trusting, relying on the Lord Jesus in the midst of our pain? Um, part, uh, pain is part of the race that we run. 
the, uh, Paul, uh, I don't know if it was Paul. We don't actually know who the author was. It could have been Paul. Um, the author of the book of Hebrews in our New Testament teaches us to run the race before us and admits and acknowledges in this passage that um, that race holds pain. And so the author exhorts us to run our race that will contain pain, to run it willfully, understanding that whatever pain we experience, it can be endured with God's help. And so the author of Hebrews exhorts us to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. Jesus endured intense pain. He despised the pain of shame that the cross brought him, and he is seated at the right hand of God. He is seated at the, in, the, in the seat of authority and power. The author of Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners rejection, mockery, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow. Purpose clause, so that, consider Jesus so that, in his way, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so this morning, as Tracy read this passage in Matthew 9, 18 through 34, we're going to encounter six people whose pain pointed them to the way, to the truth, and to the life. So we're going to start with two daughters healed. Jesus is the life. Two daughters healed. We catch Jesus here in this moment in mid-stride. Uh, he has just, he's, he's in almost mid-sentence, mid-conversation with some of John the Baptist's disciples who are questioning he and his disciples on why they don't fast, though John's disciples do and though the Pharisees do. They're coming and saying, hey, your people don't live out the law like we live according to the law. Jesus has been on a long run in this moment, encountering one person in pain after another. Now, when I experience my own pain, when I experience other people's pain, I often shut down. And the good news is that you're not looking to me to carry your pain, and you're not looking to one another to carry your pain, but together we look to the Lord Jesus Christ who lives today to carry our pain. We do not see Jesus shutting down when we bring our pain to him. He can contain all of it and more. Seven billion people on the globe collectively suffering together, coming to the Lord Jesus with our pain, and we don't even begin to get him in the red line. He is sovereign and powerful, competent to carry our pain. He's a lighthouse for sinners and sufferers. He's acquainted with suffering. The scriptures call him a man of sorrows. So Jesus, the God-man, absorbs our sorrows. This ruler of a synagogue, um, his, the other gospels, Mark and Luke, tell us his name is Jairus. He comes up to Jesus, comes to Jesus in desperation. He kneels down to, before Jesus in reverence, and he just blurts out in this moment what he believes about Jesus. He says, my daughter has just died, but, but if you come, Jesus, and if you touch her, if you lay your hand on her, she will live. That is a statement of faith, if ever there is a statement of faith. But if you do this, she will live. He's desperate. The other gospels tell us that this young girl, about 12 years old, is his only daughter. He is desperate for her to live. 
Jairus is not a rabbi. He's a ruler of his local synagogue, which means that he's responsible for the upkeep of the building. He's responsible for the liturgy, the order of service there at the synagogue, for picking out the scriptures that they will read. Earlier, uh, so, so likely he's, um, he, people like Jairus are opponents of Jesus because they see Jesus as bending uh, the rules or the law uh, that they are working hard to uphold. Earlier, we see, just in last week's passage, we see Jesus calling Matthew, who was a tax gatherer, a tax collector. And we see Matthew gives us this language that when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, Matthew rose from his occupation and he followed Jesus. And now Matthew, as he's writing this gospel for us in this passage, he shows us an entirely new angle on Jesus. Jesus gets up and follows those who need his touch and need his presence. Jairus comes to Jesus, asks Jesus if he will touch his dead daughter and make himself unclean in order to make her live. And Jesus agrees gladly joyfully. Mark and um, Luke, both in their account of this exact same uh, story here, tell us that Jesus was well known in Capernaum. The city is Jesus's home base of mission. This is where he, he, he launched his ministry for three years. And, and, and these other accounts tell us in this account too, that the crowds were pressing in on Jesus He's walking along to heal this young dead girl. So we've got to get our minds in this moment that Jesus is going with Jairus. Jesus has got his disciples around him, but there are all kinds of people around him too, pressing in on him. And there's commotion and there's probably people, there could be people heckling Jesus at the same time. There are people grasping for him, trying to get his ear, trying to get his touch. And someone indeed does come to him trying to get a touch or some sort of healing. Someone else's pain leads them directly to Jesus. This time it was a woman who suffered a discharge of blood, likely menstrual blood, for 12 long years. 12 years consistently struggling. Her story teaches us that Jesus is is never too busy for you and I. Mid-stride, he's on a mission. He's going to heal Jairus' ill or dead daughter, And this woman comes up and touches the hem of his robe here. According to, um, to just a a note on this woman, according to biblical law, for the duration of of time that a person has this kind of discharge of blood, they would be ceremonially unclean. They would be unable, they would be barred from participating in civic life, in religious life. This woman would likely be severely anemic, which could mean that her skin would be very pale or have a yellowish tint to it. Her hair would be thin. Her hair would be brittle. She would suffer from very low energy. She would probably be thin herself, gaunt. She would likely suffer from intense and extreme headaches. Some of you know what that's like. She's, the other gospel accounts, Mark and Luke, tell us that, uh, that, that she had spent all of her money on physicians and none of them could help her, but her condition continued to worsen. Putting herself in this woman's shoes, she is desperate. She not only is suffering physically, but she, she's suffering socially. 
She's cut off from civic life and from religious life, named unclean. She carries shame with her day to day. This lady takes a big risk. She enters this crowd, this throng of people that are following Jesus, perhaps disguising herself because it's a small area. People know people. She may have had to to robe herself in some way to try to get to Jesus. Anyone who touches this woman would themselves become unclean. She's desperate. She is desperate in this moment. Matthew lets us in on her inner dialogue. If I only touch his garment, if I just get close enough to grab his clothing, I will be made well. Matthew's language here, we, it, it, he, he, he mentions Jesus's garment, but Mark and Luke's language, they talk about the fringe or the hem of Jesus's garment. I just discovered this this week. I've never known this, but uh, this, this, what, what these gospel writers are showing us is that Jesus, um, he was, the clothing that Jesus wore was prescribed by the law of Moses. I had no idea that Jesus's clothing was prescribed in Numbers chapter 15. This shows us another picture of Jesus upholding the law, gladly keeping and obeying the commands of the Lord. He's here to fulfill the law. He's present tense fulfilling the law, but he has not yet past tense fulfilled the law. So he is living as a law-abiding Jew. He's not breaking the law of God. He might be breaking the law of the Jews because they've added on to the law of, of God but he himself is God. And so he can do that with authority and correct and call them back to walking according to biblical law. So this is what Numbers 15, 37 through 41 say. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments. Get this, throughout their generations. Jesus is one of those generations. They're to put a cord of blue on the tassel, these hanging tassels of each corner of the garment. And this tassel shall be for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. They're there as a visual reminder to do the commandments of the Lord, to remember the commandments of the Lord and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. Did you know that? I had no idea. So when she comes up saying, I want to touch the hem of his garment, She understands, likely, that Jesus was not only a healer, not only a miracle worker, she'd heard reports about him, but that he was also a law-abiding Jew. The fact that she decided to touch the fringe, the hem, the tassels of his garment was an act of faith squarely aimed at Yahweh's power to heal her. She was not rejecting God by approaching Jesus like a person who will go to anyone and do anything and and compromise on their convictions in order to be healed. But rather, she understood in some way that Jesus was aligned with Yahweh, that he was from Yahweh. Even though these crowds press in and approach Jesus, her approach was different than their touch. Her touch was full of faith. She was not there for the show. Jesus was not a mere magician. Her pain led her. Her pain led to her faith in Christ. And her faith in Christ led her straight to him. 
Now, Mark and Luke, these other accounts, they tell us that Jesus felt this power go out from him. He's the, he, he's the power of God. The scriptures declared, uh, I think 1 Corinthians calls Jesus the power of God. So when power goes out from him, he knows. As God, he knows. Her touch was different. She slips in. She gets what she's looking for, the touch she's looking for, and she slips away, but not so fast in this moment. Jesus knew he was there, and he was not satisfied with just physical healing. So he says, who touched me? His disciples, the other accounts tell us his disciples are like, you crazy? Everyone is touching you right now. No, no, no. Who touched me? I imagine Jesus in this moment, like he stops. You can see the look in his eyes. He kind of starts to get some distance in the crowd with him. He's looking around. Who touched me? The other accounts tell us that this woman understood that she was caught. And so she comes to him and she kneels down before him and she spills the beans. Matthew is just going for the sharp details. He doesn't tell us any of that. She spills the bean, but what, what the beans, but what Matthew does tell us is that Jesus spoke to her and Jesus' first words out of his mouth to this woman are, take heart. She's like busted. She's making these people unclean. If Jesus was a Pharisee or a, a pious, a, a self-righteous type, she's going to get condemned and cast out right in front of everybody. More public humiliation. His first words to her in her pain are, take heart. This means take courage. It means have courage. He calls her daughter, which is a familial term. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of safety. It's a term of warmth and affection and love. Take courage, have courage, daughter. I'm not mad at you. Your faith has made you well. In other words, your faith has driven you to me and I have made you well. So in this moment, this woman, instead of rejection, instead of condemnation, she has closure. Rather than sneaking in potentially and then sneaking out, then having a conscience that just gnaws at her for days and months and years over what she has done, she gets Jesus' eye contact. She sees the color of his eyes. She hears the tone of his voice. He's speaking directly to her. She gets approval from him. In a moment of potentially her greatest shame and, and rejection, she gets approval. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus' parting words to her were go in peace. From that hour, Matthew tells us she was made well. She's a believer in not just the healing power of Jesus, but the fact that he is from God. Augustine, a, a fourth century church father, uh, he says this that is profound about faith and about our faith, and this is applicable to us. He says, if there is faith in us, Christ is in us. For what else the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Augustine says, therefore, your faith in Christ is, the, is Christ himself in your heart. Your faith in Christ is Christ himself in your heart. So this is what it means for you, disciple of Jesus, this morning. This is what it means for you. Jesus is present with you whenever you exercise trust in him. Jesus is present with you in the moment whenever you exercise trust in him. Christ-centered faith, your Christ-centered trust is a guaranteed place of encounter with the living God, who is not dead, but who is alive. 
present with you. We doubt. We have a hard time getting our minds around this, but he is present with us. Matthew picks up with Jairus again uh, as Jesus arrives at Jairus' heart, coming to heal his only daughter. They get to the house and there are professional mourners making a commotion. Did you know that these two flute players and this wailing woman here are professional mourners? Did you know that they had that in their day? This was prescribed by Jewish law so that nobody grieved alone. I think it's, I think it's actually a really beautiful prescription, but it had become a business for some. Jewish law actually prescribed a minimum of two flute players and a wailing woman anytime somebody died. Remember, this guy Jairus, he's the ruler of the synagogue, so he's an influential religious figure. He has a lot of friends. He's well-known. Lots of people, lots of noise as they arrive at Jairus' household. Now, uh, this isn't like our day. Um, in Palestine, when somebody died, you had to get right to the funeral. You had to move right toward burial. Bodies would decompose quickly. So there's some urgency in this scene when they arrive and Jesus rolls in and tells them to go away. She's sleeping. Now, to be fair, the scriptures use the word sleep as a euphemism for death, often. Uh, Matthew Henry, a, a commentary in the 1800s on the scriptures, he says this about sleep and about death. I think it's, it's interesting, so I wanted to tell you about it. He says, sleep is a short death and death is a long sleep. Sleep is a short death, and death is a long sleep. Everybody in this society in those days, they would see death at one time or another. You knew when a person was dead, no question. And if your vocation is to be a professional mourner, you, part of your job description is that you will see death. The fact that these professional mourners, these people making a commotion, laugh at Jesus when he says that she is sleeping means that at least some of them were not in grief. They were actually doing their job for money, mourning superficially. They mock Jesus's authority here when he talks of resurrection and Matthew wants us to hear it too. Some of us, our own peers, will mock us when we celebrate and talk about the resurrection, about the fact that God heals the dead, that he brings dead people to life. In this moment, Jesus asks unbelief to leave. He tells unbelief to get out. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus invites Peter, James, and John, and Jairus, his wife, to go into this room where this girl is dead, where this girl is asleep. And so he goes in here with believers. He takes her cold, still hand in his, and he wakes her up from death. She gets up. The other gospel writers tell us she gets something to eat. She starts walking around. People are still lingering around outside, probably waiting to mock Jesus some more. They see this girl with light in her eyes and health in her flesh and movement in her bones and they realize that she is alive and they post about it on all of their channels and word about Jesus spreads and spreads and spreads. His fame grows. And then we come, Matthew tells us about another story here. 
two guys with no vision, the blind leading the blind. Literally, in this moment, Jesus gives sight. He wants us to see more and more and more of how Jesus is about our, he's about the whole person. He has authority over disease and over demons. He has authority over illness. He has authority over our bodies not working as they should. He has authority over death. Jesus walks on from there. Two blind men follow him and they begin making a commotion. Matthew tells us that they cry out after him and they say, have mercy on us. And then they call Jesus something. This is the first time in Matthew that they call Jesus son of David. This is a bold move on their part. Son of David here is pregnant with significance. We know this if you're with us in uh, the, the whole story, that Jesus is um, the, the promised king of the house and the lineage of David. And so the fact that they call Jesus son of David here is to invite ridicule from the pious, and it's to ascribe Jesus' messianic status. Though they are blind, they can see who Jesus really is. They know who Jesus really is. R.C. Sproul writes this about David. Uh, he, He writes, he says, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. Under his leadership, the nation enjoyed its golden age. As a warrior, David conquered Israel's enemies. He extended Israel's boundaries. He was a sterling administrator. He was also a great musician and the poet laureate of the people, penning the majority of the Psalms in our Bibles. But more than all of that, God had promised that from the line of David would come a king whose reign would never end. However, David's kingdom did end. The golden age actually turned to bronze under the reign of David's son Solomon. And then after his son Solomon, the kingdom turned to rust when it was divided in two. The record of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah is a history of a rogues gallery of Old Testament life and culture until both kingdoms were eventually conquered. The blind men, though, held on to this promise that a king would come and a king would restore Israel and bless the nations. And they're in pain, a kind of pain of their own, the pain of blindness. And they persist in their faith. Just like any time and any age, blindness causes a great deal of difficulty. All of your other senses have to heighten. You have to be extra aware of where you are. You have to make extra plans to get things done and to go places. They follow Jesus. They follow the commotion. Maybe they have some handlers and some people there who are helping them follow Jesus. But Jesus goes into a house. He's often, we catch him. I I learned this too. I've seen this pattern recurring in Matthew. He's often, um, the crowds are following him and he's slipping into houses. He's likely trying to create some distance from, from him and the crowds. This, the, the, the gospel writers often present the, present the crowds as problematic. All of this commotion, it's causing some danger. It's causing uh, difficulty in hearing and Jesus teaching. There's hecklers, there's dogs, there's people. All, you know, like there's, there's stuff going on. And so he slips into houses often. He slips into a house and these two guys go after him. And Jesus puts their faith to the test and he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe that I'm able to do what you're asking? And they said to him two things that were crucial, two words. They said to him, yes, Lord. So yes, we believe that you're competent. Yes, we believe that you are able. And they also called him Lord. 
So their, le- their yes here led them to Jesus and their Lord led them to submit their well-being and their future hopes to Jesus as well. Nothing means more to Jesus Christ than to be trusted. Your faith matters intensely to the Lord Jesus. Our peril, our first parents in the garden were exiled from the garden because of distrust. We trusted ourselves, we trusted the serpent, we walk away from God. And the long, terrible story of human history, like C.S. Lewis says, is of humanity looking to someone and something other than God to make ourselves happy. We are consistently and constantly placing our trust in things other than the Lord Jesus and nothing means more to him than to be trusted. Disciple, in your pain, do you trust him? In your pain, in your diagnosis, in your illness, in your disability, in your being passed over at your job, in your housing plans not working out, in your pain, do you trust Jesus? Jesus reaches out and touches their eyes. This is an intimate act. How many, how many people in this room, how many people's eyes have you touched in this room? A handful, and they're probably sitting right next to you. We just don't touch one another's eyes. This is an intimate act. Imagine this moment. Imagine the expectation. Do you believe that I'm able to do this for you? Yes, Lord. And then imagine that you, you don't know what's going on. You don't sense the hand coming, but you feel the warmth of a hand and you feel the, the God of creation touching your eyes. Imagine the trust required, the tremble in your body and their eyes are opened. Their sight is restored and regained. And Jesus sternly warns in this moment, see that nobody knows about it. But they go away and what do they do? They spread his fame throughout all their district. Is that problematic? It's not a trick question. The Lord Jesus sternly warned them not to do something and they went, went and did it anyways. Is that problematic? Not a trick question. It's problematic. Were they justified in their disobedience? It's not a trick question. No. Jesus told them not to do something and they went and did it anyways. After being incredibly gracious to them, he sternly warns them not to do something, but they go and do it anyways. We need to heed this warning. If God through his word, God through his spirit, God through his son tells us not to do something, we should not do that thing. If God through his word, through his son, through his spirit tells us that we are to do something, we should quickly do that thing. One of Jesus' disciples who is here in this moment, who is witnessing these things, one of his inner circle, Peter, writes a couple of letters in our New Testaments to a suffering church after Jesus has died and been resurrected. And Peter writes to this suffering church. He says, for if after, this is a warning from Peter, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if after they've come to faith in Jesus Christ and escaped the defilements of the world, if they're again entangled in those defilements, in their sin, in their disobedience and overcome by them, the last state, the most recent state for them now has become worse than the first state. 
Peter writes, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. He goes on and says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Frederick Dale Bruner, a commentator on Matthew says this, this story should now further instruct us that when we have had an experience of grace, when we've encountered the Lord Jesus, or even a reception of the Holy Spirit, obedience to the simple commands of Jesus is not dispensable. Can you hear this? The Christian life is not just lived in the glow of a wonderful experience. It's lived more soberly in simple obedience to Jesus. Our experience, our feelings, our best thinking, even some leading from we think the Holy Spirit should not move us to contradict Jesus's clear commands. Can you hear that this morning? Obedience matters. Trust in the Lord Jesus matters intensely. This leads us to the last movement in this passage of a trapped and oppressed man. Jesus sets his people free, though not everybody wants it. As the formerly blind men were going away by their own sight, no longer needing to be directed, but being directed by their own sight, another person is now brought before the Lord Jesus by friends who are aware of his pain. He's oppressed by a, a, a demon. That's why he cannot speak. We don't know if he cannot hear or speak. Matthew only tells us that he is mute. But what we see in this instance is that there are people bringing this man. He was brought before the Lord Jesus. Another instance in chapters eight and nine of intercession where people are coming and bringing their loved ones before the Lord Jesus to be healed, to find redemption, no matter what this man's situation, if it was only that he couldn't talk or if it, that he couldn't hear or talk, in any case, Jesus sets this guy free by casting this demon out, by barring this demon from having any influence over him. And immediately this crowd who continued to press in around Jesus was amazed at his authority because the man began to speak. It's a small town. People know one another. They've seen this over time. And he begins talking and they all begin to marvel at Jesus's power saying, never was anything seen in Israel like this. Nobody has witnessed anyone like this. I don't think that's hyperbolic at all. Jesus is unlike any human being who has ever lived. The power and the authority, he's creator, He's God. But not everyone, and we need to take this soberly, not everyone marveled at Jesus in this moment. Some sneered at him. These Pharisees in this moment, they said, it's by the prince of demons that he casts out the demons. They said, in, in, in normal everyday terms, he's got the power of the devil in him. That's how he's doing these things. They come to Jesus accusing Jesus of blasphemy. They're blaspheming God. This is blasphemy. They're accusing God of using, of, of, of being Satan, of being aligned with Satan in this moment. 
And this will lead us to more and more interactions with the Pharisees as, as they have decided among themselves, they've taken counsel that they will destroy Jesus. They will ultimately, ultimately call for his crucifixion and the Romans will grant it. Going back to where we began this morning, for some, our pain will promote our faith in Christ. Pain is going to come. If it's not already here for you, it's going to come. And it's not just going to come once, but it's going to come in waves. It's going to come in your own body. It's going to come in your relationships. It's going to come in your workplace. It's going to come in your homes. It's going to come in your neighborhoods. It's going to come in your cities. It's going to come in our world. It is constantly coming for us, wave after wave after wave. Our pain can promote our faith in Christ. I say this a lot. I think I said it recently. God often takes us where we don't want to go in order to produce in us faith and robustness of trust that can't be produced in any other way. Our pain is not evidence that he is absent from us. Our pain oftentimes is evidence that he is with us. He uses our pain to promote our faith. But oftentimes when pain comes, our pride keeps us from strengthened faith. We quit, we give up, we determine in our pride that God is not in this. And there's folly in that. So here's one thing, one application this morning, and then we're done. What does it look like for you to choose now? What does it look like for you to pray now? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when pain comes, would you teach me to come reflexively directly to you? Would you just pray that prayer during communion or during our time of song or before you walk out of this building? Lord, would you use my pain to promote my faith? Would you weaken my pride? Would you weaken my self-reliance? Would you strengthen my faith? That is simple prayer that God longs to answer in you. And we've got to know perfectionists in the room, you're not going to get it right the first time, the second time, the 10th time, or the 30th time. But progressively, as we practice this kind of reflexivity, we grow in our reflexiveness to come to the Lord Jesus with our pain. He delights to answer this prayer, but we're not machines. You don't just enter a code and boop, it's done. We take some time in learning new ways because reflexively we move away when pain comes, oftentimes. But God wants to use our pain to promote our faith. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our faith given to us by your grace. It's a gift that draws us to you. We did not come finding you, but you came on a rescue mission for us. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you where we are struggling in our faith, would you shore us up? Would you cause strength to just to, to fill our hearts and our minds this morning? Would you cause your people to trust you? Would we recognize that this is not of our own doing, but something happened to me? The spirit of God was with me. I have a kind of joy and a kind of peace in the midst of my pain that I did not have. And now I believe that God has granted it to me. Thank you, Lord. Would you fill us with gratitude? Would you fill us with joy? And for those in the room that are outside of belief in you, that are not your disciples, that are not following you, would, you, would they intensely feel your love this morning, today, in the coming weeks and months? And would they come to you understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord? 
that he has died for their sin, past, present, and future, and been raised to life on the third day, that he is not dead, but that he lives and that he intercedes for all who call on his name, never, ever, ever putting them to shame. Would you fill all of us, Christian and non-Christian in this room, with that kind of faith, please? Please, please, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.